When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. The physician Siddhartha Mukherjee is widely recognised as the greatest science writer of our times. He follows his Pulitzer Prize winning book The Emperor of All Maladies and New York Times bestseller The Gene and Intimate History with The Song of the Cell, a mesmerising history of cell biology that transports readers from Restoration London to the birth of a revolutionary new kind of medicine. He joined us live on stage in conversation with geneticist, broadcaster and former guest on this podcast, Adam Rutherford. Let me just start with a few biographical questions because people know your work here, bestsellers in the UK as well, shortlisted for the Royal Society Book Prize and the Welcome Book Prize, but maybe they don't know you as well because you live in New York. So why don't you give us a sort of two-minute potted biography of how you get from Bengal via Delhi to New York back to London. <laughs> well, I, I was, my family is Bengali. I was not born in Bengal. I was born in Delhi uh, and went to school there. Then went to Stanford, of all places, in California um, as an undergraduate. Worked in Paul Berg's lab, um, which is, of course, very much part of the, the book on genetics. Paul Berg... First person to do genetic engineering in the world, 1973. Nobel Prize in 1980? Mm, nah, a little later. I want to say. Nah, yeah. So it's a good lab, anyway. The point is, yeah. <laughs> then came, I was a Rhodes Scholar, came to Oxford and was there for three years, studied immunology with Alan Townsend, who's in this book. Alan is an, a close friend. Paul's also a close friend. Paul's 90. I'm having dinner with him next week. And uh, Paul loves to have bets. And every, every time I see him, he, he has a bet with me about something or the other. It could be something completely random. Um, and and the, the loser takes the winner out to dinner. And this has been going on for 10 years. But anyway, so Paul Berg then came to Allen Townsend. Allen Townsend Wait, I want to know what the bets are. <laughs> this and and who's winning? <laughs> well, this time, actually, I won. The bet was actually an interesting bet. The bet was that the Nobel Prize for the discovery of CRISPR would be either awarded just to Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier, who are actually close friends of mine, versus it would be split three ways, because there's an option of splitting it three ways, um, to someone else. And Paul chose the three, so he had a winner's advantage, because it could be anyone. Uh-huh. Um, I said just Jennifer and Emmanuel. The, I, I, I thought that the, the discovery was, was so momentous it would be just Jennifer and Emmanuel and I won um, but now you have to pay for dinner in Oxford no no he has to pay for dinner oh because it's, you won yeah yeah, won. Got yes, it. yeah, yeah he has to pay for dinner that's a much better wherever. deal exactly yeah. so so anyway back to biography um I so then I went I was at um I was at Stanford and came to Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar lived in Oxford for three years worked with Allen then went to Harvard Medical School where I trained in medicine first ran the emergency room for about six months, uh, which was a frightening experience. Uh, I think more frightening for the patients than for me. And then um, did my fellowship in cancer biology, cancer medicine, but I had already had my PhD from Oxford, so I was an immunologist by training. And so after all of that, launched my own laboratory at Columbia, where I teach and 
write and do various other things. It's kind of revolting how over-qualified you, you are. <laughs> well, it, um, I suppose it can be revolting, but it didn't feel revolting when I was, uh, <laughs> when I was doing those things. And so, so in, in order to get to this book, let's, let's just quickly go, go through the other, the other two books. So as you are a cancer specialist, you're an oncologist, you're a practicing doctor to this day when you're not writing best-selling books. But um, the first book, The Emperor of All Maladies, which was a huge, mega international bestseller, that is, the subtitle is a biography of, of cancer. So what was it that, 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 that you wanted to explore in your field as an expert? Well, in that you book? know, to some extent, The Emperor was, a, um, was written because it wasn't there. When, I mean, obviously we're living in an age of cancer. I mean, the word appears every day in, the, in, in every newspaper. And when, you look around, when I looked around, this was um, in, 2000, when I started writing the book was 2006. Um, when I looked around, there was no history of it. Um, where had it come from? Where were we going? And it was inspired by a patient's question, she said, and she was asking a question about her own journey. She said, how did I get here and where am I going? But if you take that question very broadly um, and think about how did we get here and where are we going, it becomes The Emperor of All Maladies, it becomes that book. And so that was the inspiration for, for that book. It was a, it, it was that, that, that book was trying to fill a void. And to some extent, the gene also was trying to fill a void um, because it seemed to me that there had been, of course, very, very good books on, on genetics uh, before, but, it had, but they had sort of lapsed in the post, um, what I would call the post-genomic era, in, in the era of sequencing whole genomes and, and CRISPR um, and all the um, vast landscape of both therapeutic and mm. ethical issues that, were, that had been brought up by that. And there, there was also, I think, which you know very well from your most recent book, there was also a, a, a lack... Um, we were just talking about this, a lack of understanding of the, of the very complex and potentially discomforting uh, birth of genetics, human genetics in particular, uh, which is through eugenics and Gorton and, and others that you mentioned in your, in your new book. And it was as if that part of the history had been erased mm-hmm. and um, genetics all of a sudden sprang like you know, out of Zeus's head in, in, you know, 1920 or something like that, when, in fact, its origins are very much in the pre-war era with um, a, a, a very uncomfortable history of, of, of the idea of human selection and human genetics. So genetics filled that void, and we'll just talk about the void that this book fills as well. Yeah, well, I think one of the things that is a common theme in all three books is that you write from the perspective of a scientist and a science historian, but also as a clinician. And that, that I think, is, is kind of unique to your work, that, that, that so many of the themes that are... Well, obviously, in a book about cancer, it's about patients, but in the gene, it also relates to disease and treating patients, and in this book, in The, the Song of the Cell as well. There, a lot of it's the history, which I find absolutely fascinating and, and, and teach and have studied myself. But then there's this other dimension to it, which is how the history and the basic science and the genetics, how that actually re- relates to patients, to disease. Yes, and, and I think the, the important thing in these books... Well, first of all, I should say that the, the books are written... If one were to reread the books, and eventually I hope they'll be compiled into a quartet, if there's a quartet, if there's a book after this. I'm only saying that because when uh, the emperor won the Guardian Book Prize, um, there was a snarky review that said... Um, this should have been called the Guardian-only book prize because he's done with anything he has to ever write. But that was not the case, obviously. But, but that, all of that said, I think I make, a, in all three books, in fact, the gene probably should come first because it is, of course, the single smallest unit of information, uh, the code. The cell probably comes next. Um, and emperor comes last because it's about when cells go wrong and physiology gets affected. So that's one important piece. But I think probably the most uh, important idea that runs through these books 
and I'll introduce it early in the conversation, is the distinction between disease and desire. And that's very important for me as a thinker, but also important for us as a society, and also important for me as a clinician uh, and as a doctor, because we have drawn historically very strong uh, boundaries between disease and desire. And I'll, by, it's quite ob obvious, but I'll explain it a little bit anyway. But please. disease, of course, is, is, is fundamentally linked to the idea of suffering. And we have understood disease uh, for, for generations since the beginning of, of human history. Desire is, is linked to some idea of enhancement or augmentation, something that we cannot do, that we want to do. And I would suggest that really for centuries, these lines were relatively easily drawn, uh, the line between disease and desire. But now, um, as we invade biology uh, with more and more precision, but, but more and more audacity, um, I think these lines are being rapidly blurred. And that's why I think these books need to enter the conversation, because, because those lines are extraordinarily important to draw. And if you don't draw them, I think many things that we understand about the world will change, and perhaps not for the better. Okay, well, let, let's, let's talk about the Song of the Soul. Let's get really stuck into it, because that's why you're here, and that's, that's the book that we're talking about. Um, we will get to, uh, during the course of this conversation, we want to talk about the therapies and, yeah. and the, the desires and all of those things that you've just mentioned. But let's, let's talk about the history, because the history is fascinating. Yes. Yes. But even before we get to that, I think we should establish some ground rules about what we mean when we're talking about cells. Because I know we have spent a lot of our lives staring at these pretty, un often pretty unremarkable sort of translucent globs down yes. microscopes. And maybe you did when you, I don't know, sliced up an onion at GCSE biology or did some hematology or something like that. And I don't know, they look, they, they, they can be pretty unremarkable. And yet, they are the basic unit of life, full of diversity, active cities buzzing with action. They are where life exists. And I, I think you made a very important point, both in your program and just now, which is that that is absolutely true, but bizarrely enough, uh, they've been sort of neglected. I wouldn't say, of course, not neglected in the literature, in the scientific literature. I'm a cell biologist. But, but if you... If you I, I was walking past, um, I, I told you this in the program, a Brazilian Botox clinic called Life. I wasn't getting Botox, but... Um, but really? Uh, <laughs> uh, and, and it had a picture of DNA on it. Um, so every time you go through anything that's called life, you know, a magazine cover on life, etc., etc., it'll have the iconic double helix on it. But of course, the, the, a G, which is, the, you know, DNA contains the information for genetics, for genes. But what's interesting, and what you realize quite obviously when you think about it, DNA is a molecule. It doesn't, it's lifeless. It is not life. Uh, it is only brought to life by a cell. A cell interprets DNA in the same way that a musician interprets a score. A score is not music. It's the musician playing the music that is music, hence the song of the cell. But, so it's the cell that really where, is where life begins in some ways, it, if you want to think about life. And we, I thought you put it very nicely in, in the program. There, it, there, there are really three foundational pieces of all biology. And by foundational pieces, they, they are so universal that they, that they span the entire biological universe as we know it. The number one being the universality of, of, genet of the genetic code and, and genetics. There are variations on the theme, but essentially the universality of it. The second is cell theory, the fact that all organisms, regardless of whether you're an elephant or a bacterium, you're made of a cell. Um, and the third, of course, is evolution. Now, evolution has a thousand books written on it. Genetics has... 2,000 books written on it, including mine. What's interesting is that there wasn't, or there really isn't, a kind of similar book about the importance of the third pillar of, of all life. So, unremarkable, remarkable as it is, the cell is remarkable. It is, the, it is the smallest living unit of life, and that thing you saw, that blob you saw um, under a microscope, or a much more complex 
cell like the one that lives in your brain does things. Uh, it's the actor, it's the doer, it's the maker, um, the, sometimes the teacher. Um, that's responsible for, for everything that, that, that we do or be or our, 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 our whole being. And so therefore, I mean, you're exactly right. I mean, what looks sometimes unremarkable is really the center of all, 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 all being. There is a reason why I use that analogy. It's not the first time. And it basically is me ribbing physicists. Because physicists have been trying to come up with a grand unifying theory of everything for about <laughs> for many years. 3,000 years, something like that. <laughs> and we got all of ours in the space of about 100 years within the last two centuries. But let, so let's talk about that then, because the history is fascinating that, that this unit of life, which is universal, all life is made of cells, and there's a second rule the, of cell theory, which we'll come to in a minute. But no one's actually seen one until 1673, something yes, like that? Yes, yes. And what was life made of before we saw that? Well, people, lots of people had lots of theories about life. I mean, they, the, idea, the idea was that life or flesh was continuous. Um, we were essentially slabs of meat, but without anything underneath the slabs of meat. We were just continuous slabs of meat. Uh, thinking slabs of meat, but slabs of meat nevertheless. And um, it wasn't until Robert Hooke looked down through his microscope and found, you know, Hooke Hook was an incredible character. Um, so so there, there's Hooke. He comes from a, a relatively poor family, gets a scholarship to Wadham College, and then becomes an apprentice. And what's amazing about Hooke, I, 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 I quote him and I say his... his um, his intelligence was phosphorescent and elastic, like a rubber band that glows while it stretches. And that's partly because Hook was hooked onto everything. He was a physicist. Um, there's a little bit of a joke in that line. He was actually elastic. He invented the laws of elasticity. He was a physicist. He was a chemist. He was a, as, I, as I'll say, a biologist, an architect, a, you know, name it, he did it. And he published a book called Micrographia, in which he looked down the, his microscope and started studying small things, starting with ants and pests and things like that. And in one of those studies, he cut a piece of cork, and he put it under the microscope, and he didn't see cells because the cork was dead, but he saw the outlines of cell walls and suddenly began to realize that what seemed continuous, a piece of cork, was in fact made up of what he called a great many little boxes. Now, Hook wasn't, he didn't make much of it. He sort of drew it and then sort of went on to his other many thousand pursuits. There was a, about a decade later, give or take, there was a, a Dutch cloth trader, a uh, cloth merchant, uh, never trained in science, uh, had barely any scientific vocabulary, who decided to invent another kind of microscope, a simple microscope, to look at the quality of thread. The Netherlands was like a booming uh, nexus of, of, of cloth trade. And he was in Delft, and he decided that he was going to look at thread. And then one day, he thought, thought, you know, why don't I use this microscope to look at a drop of water? And inside that drop of rainwater, he found hundreds of single-celled, we now think protozoa, but various kinds of animals. He called them animalcules. You have this wonderful story about him. You know, he, he, he looked at his own semen and found sperm, uh, which he called genital animalcules. Um, we can talk about that story in a second. And um, went on and on and on. I mean, he looked at, you know, um, he, he looked at human tissue, and he started writing letters to the, to the Royal Society, where, of course, Hook was then the, the president and realized, and Hooke realized that in fact, what he had seen in these little boxes was all over. It was all over the animal kingdom, these little swimming animalcules. Now this is before cell theory is established. This is just people finding and looking at cells. And that's how, that's the first time anyone ever saw a cell. I know you've seen, you've used oh. one of uh, the microscopes that... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you didn't have to bring it up here, but uh, I mean, the story behind the semen is, is that um, he wrote all of these letters up, and he was ignored by the Royal Society. Exactly, yeah. Because he wasn't a, gentle, a bewigged gentleman of science, and he wrote in Dutch. Yeah, and very colloquially. He yeah. Would, yeah. Um, so he didn't publish his 
observations of his own semen, but he is the first person to see his sperm. It's just a line. The reason Sid's bringing this up is because there's a line in his notes, which are unpublished, in which he says that he acquired this sample not by sinfully defiling himself, but as a, a natural byproduct of conjugal coitus. <laughs> which is so much worse. It, it, <laughs> and, and the second reason he's mentioning this now is because a few years ago I made a documentary in which we went to the, the Van Leeuwenhoek Museum and we also looked at a similar sample, which <laughs> yes. was we'll, mine. We'll, we'll keep it at that. Yes. Um, it, it was no old, one was uh, expecting to talk to No, me. no. <laughs> I mean, it was on BBC4, so no one saw it anyway. Um, anyway, so Van Leeuwenhoek is the first person to see any cell, and he sees protists, sort of amoeba, and he sees his sperm, he sees blood cells, he sees bacterial plaque from between his his teeth, and he sends it off to the Royal Society. No one takes him seriously because he's, he writes in common Dutch. But Hook is the person that he persists with, and he, he is the man who has the revelation and goes, I think this guy might be onto something. Yes, that's right. So, so Hook actually does publish his work. Um, he translates it. He does publish his work. And, 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 and Lowenhook is, a, is, is, as I said, he's a really bizarre character because having made this discovery, he then refuses to let anyone... Look, at, look through his microscopes, which is totally bizarre, but he's extraordinarily secretive because he thinks that someone's going to steal this, his, his, his microscope. Um, he's made, he makes about 500 of them. If you ever have a chance, there's one in Cambridge. There are many in, in the Lovenhoek Museum, but they're really very beautiful. Um, they're small little plates with lenses that he would make himself. And um, the lenses are tiny. They don't look like... You know, when you think of a microscope, you think of the thing, you look down like that, but they're, they're little Yeah, they're little things that you hold them up to the sun, and you have to put a drop of water in front of it. I made one, uh, a very bad one, but uh, it was COVID, and I had nothing else to do except <laughs> make a Lovenhock microscope. Did it work? Um, yes, it did work, actually, after a lot of time. I mean, these days it's easier because you can, uh, you can order the plate, and you can order a plate with a, you know, with a, with, with a, with a hole in it, and you can order the lens, so it's, it's why I didn't have to blow certain blow my own glass and grind my own glass lens. Because the lens itself... The I lens mean, is I could nerd very... out on this, and we mustn't, because I'm an optics nerd, but it's like a little peppercorn. It's round, it's spherical. It's, it, it, has to be very, it has to be very accurately made. Um, it has to be ground to perfection, um, because otherwise you get aberrations and you can't see anything. But anyway, we'll, that's the optics piece of it. I mean, we could, we could, we could just talk about the history... Um, for easily for an hour because it is such a it's, it's really the birth of biology and it's, the, it's foundational to the, the, the Royal Society and this is, we're in what was Gresham College here which is very closely associated with the, that anyway we could talk about that for hours and we won't because we need to move on Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out My solution is Plush Care PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. But so Levin, Van Leeuwenhoek sees these cells for the first time and it begins to develop. It, it turns into over the next century or so into what becomes what we've described as the sort of one of the grand unifying theories of biology that all life is made of cells. But it takes a weird dinner party for, for this, this unification to happen with yes. a bunch of odd characters, yes. which, is, which you describe brilliant, beautifully yeah. in the introduction. What, what happens? So um, there are two students, uh, Schleiden and Schwann, and they're both unusual characters, one of them is a lawyer-turned-botanist, and he's a lawyer-turned-botanist because he hates law. He tries to shoot himself, uh, but he misses, and so... That's uh, <laughs> not funny, but it's just at the dinner party, he's got a massive scar on his head yes. when he invents cell biology. Yes, so he's, he's, he, and, <laughs> and, and, then, and then a zoologist. And what, uh, what Schleiden, uh, he's, he's looking at... Um, he's work, they w- both worked in Germany under uh, Johannes Müller, and he's been looking at the development of plants as a botanist. And he's been seeing some commonalities. But the most important commonality, which, we'll, which he will state later, is that um, when he sees the plant developing, he sees them forming through cells. 
he sees the, act, the, the process of, of formation of a, an organism through cells. And they're, they're at this dinner party uh, in Berlin, and the, the, the zoologist says, well, wait a second, I've been looking at the growth of animals, um, and I too have been seeing the, the formation of the organism through cells. And so they, they sort of drag each other to the microscope, and very soon they realize that they've stumbled on a common phenomenon that seems to link the plant world and the animal world, and that is that both animals and plants are formed through cells. And so they make the first tenets of, of cell biology, that all animals are formed, animals and plants are formed through cells, and in fact that all, all organisms are, 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 made of, uh, are, are made of cells. So, so they lay down the basis of cell biological theory, the universality. Lots of people had seen cells before, Lewenhoff we talked about, we talked about, but no one had made the, the incredibly audacious claim that in fact, across the entire animal and plant and other kingdoms, that everything was a cell. Every living creature was made of cells. And so that's the first part of yeah. cell theory. Cell theory comes in, in, yes. in two parts. The first is that all life is made of cells. And then the second part comes a few years later. And it, it also is based in Germany. It's based out, out of Berlin. But an, another amazing story about how, so where cells come from. Because if all life is made of cells... And these, these people like Schwann and Schleiden and others are looking at how they develop, how organisms develop. Embryology is a big thing at that time, as it is today. But there was a question of where cells come from in the first place. And for the previous 2,000 years, uh, there was an assumption that they just sprang out of nowhere, that they spontaneously yes. generated. And that turns out to be not true. Right, so, so now we move a little bit further ahead in time. Um, uh, young... 30-odd-year-old pathologist in Germany um, is studying cells, cell biology, particularly, he's a pathologist, particularly interested in uh, leukemia, and so he, he picks up on work done by others, and he makes the third claim, or perhaps a second big claim, which is that all cells come from other cells. Now, again, all of us know this, it seems very obvious today, but there was a huge debate uh, going on at that point of time about where cells came from. And even Schleiden, uh, the inventor of cell theory, thought that cells sort of crystallized out of some vital fluid. There's a theory called vitalism, and in fact, lots of people still believe it, that in fact there's something special, uh, that we're not just sort of chemical soups uh, walking around. There's something special in our chemical soup. There's some special seasoning um, that makes life, life. And what Verkau was saying is, in some ways, he was saying there's no special seasoning. It's life comes from life, cells come from cells. And that's the way we grow. We grow out from a single cell by, that, by the division of that cell into two cells, into four cells, into eight, and so forth, and, 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 and until we get the several trillion cells that, that, that make, up a, make, up a, make up a body. So, um, and, and in Latin, that's omnis cellula, a cellula, from cells come from cells. Very radical in its time because of this, these countervailing theories that they, of spontaneous generation, vitalism, and, and, and etc. Et but then Verkau matures as a, as a physician scientist, and I, it, the book is almost dedicated to him. I like the word almost dedicated. It's like... Uh, um, you, you, he sort of just missed the mark. Mm. But anyway. Um, and he kind of nicked the idea a little bit off someone else, didn't he? Yes, he, he, he does. Well, omnicellular cell is, is an idea that, that actually existed before him um, in other work, but he, he sort of brought it out of history and, oh, and, yeah. and, and, and stamped it. But the next two ideas are, are absolutely his, and they're also foundational. But the next idea is that all uh, human physiology is the consequence of cellular physiology. Um, now, let, let, let's pause and, uh, and contemplate that idea for a second. This is in 1840-something or the other. And here is someone saying that everything that we are and do, our bodies do, is a consequence of cells doing something. The fact that we can regulate salt and water, the fact that our brains think, the fact that you are, and I are having this conversation it's all a consequence of cells doing something to enable that to happen. 
you know, the environment, behavior, chance, life happens around it. But ultimately, it has to go down to the cell to be the actor of it. You know, the fact that there's blood rushing through our veins and, and arteries, it, it, there's a consequence of that, and that is that, that you know, oxygen is being delivered and, and nutrients are, be, you know, waste products are being cleared. So this very central idea, all normal physiology is a consequence of cellular physiology, is also radical. And then he just turns that idea on its head. He, it's the mirror image. And he argues that if that's the case, then all disease, so he gets even more radical now, he, he argues that all disease must be a disease that is an aberration or dysfunction of cells. So all of a sudden, we have a theory of how the body is made, what makes the body, how cells are born, how physiology occurs, and how and why disease occurs. And with that, you get a, a complete new universe, as it were, of biology and medicine and cell biology, etc. These are some of the biggest ideas that anyone's ever had in biology, along with natural selection and universal genetics, and that's why we sing their praises. But I think it is so radical. Because if you think about, you think about how we now know that we start as a single cell, an egg that's being fertilized by a sperm, the biggest cell in the human body and the smallest cell in the human body combine, and that's where all life starts. But the implications of the first part, or the second part of cell theory, that all cells come from other cells, is a really brain-scrambling concept because it means that that egg cell came from another cell, which means you can trace the lineage of that through your mother. Yeah, now you're asking a very interesting question, yeah. And then it means you can go back all the way through the history of life on Earth, that when you cut your finger or when you get a bleeding gum or you graze your knee and the cells that grow to repair that damage, they are part of a lineage which starts four billion years ago and is unbroken. And that's incredible, right? So if you really think about that idea as unbroken, uh, the unbroken lineage, in other words, you could, if you could draw that infinite tree, that infinite tree of trillions of cells that we all have in common, plus the other trillion that are in bacteria, plus the other trillion that more than a trillion, etc., etc., etc. If you were to take that entire lineage tree and wind the clock backwards and wind it backwards and wind it backwards and wind it backwards, you would end up with one cell, the mother of all life. That was a very pregnant pause. I know. I just, <laughs> just wanted to let that land because it is the, it's the biggest idea that there is. It is the greatest story ever told. We call that cell Luca, the yeah. last universal common ancestor, and we think it started... Well, I, I, I'm part of a, a branch of science that thinks that it started at the bottom of the ocean, possibly in hydrothermal vents about 3.9 billion years ago, but from Luca, which divided and divided for the next 2 billion years, for the next, four, the next 2 billion years after that, and when you do anything... Those, the, sec, the, other, the third part of, of, of what you're saying, any interaction you have with the rest of the universe is modulated by a lineage which started four billion years ago. These are big, big thoughts, and, and I think we don't talk about them much, do we? Yes, I think, I think, we, uh, the, I think, I think it's partly because the, the mind boggles a little bit mm. uh, at the thought. Um, but, it's, but, but they're true, I mean... From that, there's been lots of attempts to create, and as you know, there are lots of competing theories about where the, the, the Luca was, existed or was born, or how. There are theories about... The, the most, I think the most accepted theory is that wherever it was, whether in the hydrothermal vent or in, or in clay, uh, uh, layers of clay, um, there was uh, the, the birth of, of uh, a molecule, probably RNA, um, as far as we know, and which had either by itself or as a partner the capacity to duplicate it itself. But that is not life because, um, as I explain in the book, if the original molecule and its duplicator drifted away, then that would be the end of life. Uh, it would be like lovers who had been lost forever and none of us would exist and nor would 
uh, the Mona Lisa, um, there would be no, there would be nothing. So th these two molecules, or whether it was one molecule is a question mark, um, had to create a membrane around themselves. Um, and that membrane is made out of fat. So they had to be fat molecules. And what's amazing is that in laboratories like Jack Shostak's lab and other labs, um, you can actually make these proto-cells. You can create artificially a blob of, of fat which resembles in many ways the membranes that our cells have very primitively. And if you keep adding more and more fat molecules to them as they absorb more fat molecules, these proto-cells divide. Now, these are completely lifeless, remember. They have no, none of the functions of life. They don't respire, they don't. But they have one quality of life, which is that they, can, they have autonomous cell division. They can, they can split themselves. And if you keep adding more fat, then those two will split themselves further. Now, if you enclose that, or, or if you take that and enclose within that box a, a molecule that can duplicate itself and carries information, you all of a sudden begin to, again, this, uh, walk through the thought for a moment with me. You, you, you've, got a, you've got a membrane, you've got a little box, and inside that box you've placed a machine that can duplicate itself, make, make another copy of itself, so that when the box divides, that piece of information also divides. And now you can encode that piece of information, and that piece of information can start making things. It can start doing things. It can make more copies of itself, and so forth. And now you begin to start thinking, is that life? And we're sort of at the edge of, of, of what might be Luca or, or, or something, and wherever it happened. That's one prominent theory. There are many other theories that we, we won't talk about, but yeah. No, I mean, we could, we, I, honestly, we could spend another hour talking about that, but... Uh, Let's, let's leap forward. So we've gone, we've gone back four billion years. We've done the 17th, 18th, into the 19th century. So let's talk about the third part of Virchow's idea, that when cells go wrong, this is the ontogeny of, of disease. Cancer is a cellular disease. It is the unregulated growth of cells. Well, I mean, you know, Virchow himself saw, saw this. Uh, he was examining a patient and he found uh, leukemia, um, in fact, named it leukemia. Cells have an incredible quality, which is that another quality of cells is that they start dividing and stop dividing. It is one of the qualities of life. Um, whenever I have graduate students, I ask them, the first question I ask my graduate students is, when you cut yourself, why don't you grow a new arm um, like a tree? And the answer is, we know some of the answer to that question, but not all the answer to the question. A wound heals and continues to heal, and when the cells meet each other, they pass signals to each other to stop dividing, and that's your wound that's healed. Cancer, in cancer, those signals are broken through genetic mutations, and that's the fundamental basis of cancer. We can talk about many, many other features of cancer, but the fundamental base of cancer is a cell where the normal regulation of cell division has been disrupted, and thereby you're get, you start getting a cell that can't stop dividing and keeps dividing as a consequence of genetic mutations. Mm. And cancer as well is you know, an incredibly sophisticated and evolving thing as it's, as it's growing, a tumor that becomes, uh, the mutations accumulate as, as they grow and spread around the body and release cells with no purpose other than to keep growing. There's no foresight in cancer other than to, to make more cells to well, the detriment of the, of the organism. Well, so cancer, in some ways, goes back to your first question. Cancer is a distortion of the three principles of life. It's a distortion of genetics, it's a distortion of cell biology, and it's a distortion of evolution. Because the cancer cell is always evolving, and because as it evolves, it changes, mutations accumulate, it, it changes its own characteristics, it can co-opt uh, properties from normal genes and, and make them uh, properties of cancer, etc., etc. So it's a fascinating thing that the disease that is now becoming the disease that sort of defines our century is, happens to be the disease that sits on top of disruptions of the three universal principles of life. Mm. And so fundamental to all aspects of 
of biology, not we are only just talking about humans here. Let, let, let's think about therapies, though. But we're, we're, you know, having established that cancer is a, a cellular disease, it is a misfunction of those, those principles, we can also utilize, we can mutate genes in cells, we can use cell therapies in order to cure loads of diseases, including cancers now. Right. So, um, I mean, the, the, some of the prominent cell therapies, and again, this is why... I sometimes have to stay up nights in, in, because India is 12 hours away. We've, we've started pioneering cell therapies in India. And I think it's the proudest thing uh, I've ever done. It's the proudest moment of my life because um, when I saw the first child that we saved with cell therapy was a, was a 10-year-old boy. So just uh, I'll just tell you the, the, how it works and then talk a little bit about that moment. But... Um, the, you can use a T-cell. T-cells are normal cells that go and kill other cells. And you can genetically reprogram it outside the body. I can take your T-cells, draw, draw them out of your body, genetically reprogram them to kill your cancer, re-inject them in your body. Um, and that, now it's called a CAR T-cell. And I won't explain what CAR stands for. You can just um, imagine it as, as a modified, genetically modified, weaponized T-cell. And we re-infuse those T-cells in the body, and they go and kill the cancer and they're actually vastly more effective than most chemotherapies. Um, these are for patients with relapsed refractory leukemias and lymphomas and myelomas, blood cancers, uh, mostly. Um, but as I said, it, was, it, it is by far the proudest moment of my life when, when this boy who was, had re- relapsed refractory leukemia, 10 years old, came alive uh, with his, his CAR T-cells. And is that, is that type of therapy, is that only for blood cancers, of which there are many? Yes. Um, so right now, for reasons we don't fully understand, these T-cells don't seem to like going and killing solid tumors, which are also which are, which are the majority of tumors, even though there are many blood cancers. And we don't know exactly why. We have some clues why, but one of the scariest images I've ever seen in my life is a solid tumor with a ring of activated T-cells all around it, but those T-cells, for some reason, can't penetrate. The solid tumors m- make substances that somehow prevent the uh, access to T-cells. I guess the bigger question, uh, just to carry on, the th- riff on this theme a little bit, um, is this idea of, of the new human. Um, and that's a very provo- provocative idea in this title. Um, it's called The Exploration of Medicine and the New Human. And what I'm trying to convey in that is that the new human is not a sort of sci-fi, infrared-equipped character um, with prosthetics and, 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 and vision. You know what I say, uh, Keanu Reeves in a black mumu. Um, that's not the new human. The new human is a human that we're building prosthetically in some ways with cells, either their own cells that have been genetically engineered or cells that we've borrowed from other bodies as in a bone marrow transplant. Um, there's an incredible example here of... Um, um, a psychiatrist, a, a woman in New York, who's been pioneering, um, and other people have, have too, placing electrodes into the brain, very deep into the brain. These electrodes are thinner than human hair, and finding an exact uh, spot where certain nerve cells are responsible, going back to Virchow, for devastating neurological diseases like Parkinson, but in her, in her case, depression. Um, and when she turns the current on, um, these neurons, these nerve cells, uh, respond, and and you get some people get relief from really recalcitrant depression, things that no drug and no therapy works. Um, so these are examples of of what I call new humans. These are people that are are that are walking am- amongst us. Someone with the, someone carrying a, a bone marrow from someone else's body is walking amongst us today. Someone carrying electrodes will start walking amongst us. And that's because we are build, having the capacity, the joint capacity of genetic engineering and cellular engineering has created the ability to create what I call the new human. Mm. That mix as well is fascinating. You talk in the book about how women, exclusively women, often, mostly, carry the cells of either... Uh, uh, unknown pregnancies or pregnancies that have resulted in, in births and those cells of the child 
just float around their bodies, or they, sometimes they land and do things. And actually, you know, looking over the audience, many of you will be carrying the cells of someone who is not you, actually only the women. If you're a man and carrying those cells, you need to go to the doctor. <laughs> but isn't that, again, just a, you know, a, a crazy idea which, which is sort of post that 19th century bubble of, of, of discovery. But now... That's right. In fact, there are three papers today in Nature. I opened Nature this morning. There are three papers in Nature back-to-back that finally describe, and that's why it's not in the book because it was published yesterday, uh, <laughs> that finally describe how and why we can live with all these microbiota in our, in our guts. Because if T cells are there to recognize and B cells are there to recognize pathogens, then why aren't we constantly eliminating all the bugs that live inside us, which are really important for us, important for our digestion, our you know, so many functions now coming out. And outnumber human and outnumber cells, human beings like by, 10 by, to 1 or whatever exactly. it is. Yeah. And, and what was amazing about it is that until this morning, we didn't know. <laughs> hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shankar, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So the second edition of The Song of the Cell will be out... Soon with that yeah. added to it. That's right, twice as thick. So. Twice as thick. And you can buy it again. Thick. Yes, exactly, exactly. Okay, I am going to open it up for, to, to questions now, so we can bring the lights up. Uh, so rules for questions, these are my rules. Um, so put your hand up. Questions are short sentences that end with an upwards inflection. <laughs> the second rule is, and this is based on published research, this is not me being politically correct, but if in question and answer sessions women ask questions first, then more women ask questions. But if men ask questions first, then women tend not to. So we'll take questions from women and men alternating your first. And the third rule is try not to be mad. Hi, Dr. Professor. Um, mind-body connection. I mean, there's a lot of talk about uh, possibly cancer coming from childhood trauma and from actual thoughts. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I'm not a believer in it at all. Um, I don't think that cancer comes from trauma. I think people who are traumatized have a hard time dealing with cancer in the sense that they often don't. They can ignore it. They can have problems with it. But um, I don't think that, the ca- that trauma can in any way directly affect our, 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 our genetics. Now, there's one caveat to that, which is that, that um, there is a strong relationship between inflammation and cancer, very well established, um, and a strong relationship also between inflammation and stress, similarly well established. Um, the word stress is a meaningless word. Uh, it means something to you, it means something else to us. But when I'm talking about stress, and I'm talking about stress as inflammation, um, I do think that there's a relationship between inflammation and cancer. So if that's the lineage you're following, I think there's, a, there's something very productive there. But uh, again, the word trauma is it means different things to different people. It has no meaning to geneticists. So I don't think that that's the reason for, 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 for cancer. Uh, thank you. Um, I, my question is around, I'm curious when you're researching this book, what was the evolution of, you know, when you talk about these, the idea of cell biology, you know, going back to this one cell, LUCA, um, how did this evolve in concert or was perhaps stymied by religious thought at the time? Well, vitalism is very important in, in religious thought, and spontaneous generation is also very important in religious thought. And so both, so vitalism claims that you have this vital fluid that is special, and in fact that vital fluid comes to you from God. At least one school of vitalists believe that, not all vitalists. Um, and spontaneous generation is similar um, in the sense that you are generated spontaneously, and similarly cells are generated spontaneously. The, the, the interesting thing about cell theory, unlike evolution, and to some extent unlike genetics, cell theory doesn't, didn't violate at least fundamental Christian principles, and therefore was allowed to evolve, I and mean, if you read the history, it was allowed to evolve quite independently once the vitalism and, and spontaneous generation were sort of set aside. And it was only much, much later than they, they began to intersect with, 
with, with religion again. I'll give you one example of that, and there are many. Um, it's much later when you have IVF, and you now have uh, genetic engineering of uh, potentially of human babies that all of a sudden embryonic stem cells, much, much later, years, almost a century later, when, when, the, when, when religion all of a sudden wakes up and says, wait a second. So it's very unlike evolution, or at least Darwinia, Darwin's idea of evolution and neo-Darwinism, etc., etc., which did have a much more um, conflicting relationship with, uh, with religion. Yeah. Um, you know, I was, yes, I was thinking I could comment on that, but I won't. Um, well, why don't you comment? Well, on that? I, I mean, obviously, I think I'm not disagreeing with you at all. I think I think one of the th- one of the relationships, one of the ways we characterise religion and its relationship with science is, I think, often is a sort of false dichotomy. But actually, religions are very um, tend to be specifically Judeo-Christian religions tend to be quite fluid in the way that they bounce in and out of scientific ideas. And there was much less resistance to Darwinian thinking than is often perceived in the 1850s and 60s. And it's only really 50 years later that, re- that, that fundamentalists in America primarily become, regard evolution by natural selection as, as problematic. With, with cells, what Sid just said is absolutely correct. But what, what I was thinking is that the injection of the soul into the, into the fertilized egg occurs at multiple times depending on which religion you're a member of and how that religion has changed over time. And so as, for example, Christians become more fundamental in America, the insolification... What's the word? Not insolification. Let's go with insolification. Exactly. <laughs> uh, occurs at, at fertilization. And that's new. That's a, that's a new description that is really less than, you know, 40 years old. Um, so religion is much more flexible than, than doctrinal. Um, so, so those relationships are always, always changing. That, that was just what I was thinking as you were answering. Anyway, um, the lady on the right-hand side, because I'm alternating, and then you, so... Um, as you mentioned that uh, the cancer cells uh, negate the three principles of life, and given that cancer cells to a certain extent are immortal or they try to bypass all the mechanism that life prevents to direct them, is there something to be learned from cancer cells as a mechanism to actually treat and, or as a mechanism for longevity itself, just like viruses have been used to treat certain diseases. Is there something to be learned from cancer? Well, there's, lots, there's, there's lots and lots of things to be learned from cancer in terms of longevity, metabolism, and, uh, and, and we're still learning uh, migration, uh, uh, you know, how to build an organ, um, cancers, um, the relationship between stem cell biology, which is a reju- rejuvenative medicine, and cancer is very, very close. Often the genes that control stem cell biology and the capacity to rejuvenate and keep rejuvenating are genes that have originally been described in cancer. Um, and they're either mutated or somehow altered in, in, um, in, in cancer cells. So there's, there's an enormous wealth of literature already there, but much, much more to be learned about how we could use under our understanding of cancer cells potentially to alter metabolism, to alter uh, longevity and so forth. Uh, two questions really, so I'll start with the trivial one. Did you ask the management to get your coffee table with a double helix under it? Well, that's a good question. No, the, <laughs> the answer is it just came naturally. It's actually not a double helix, I think. It's a, no, uh, uh, under the coffee table. Yes, I, I see under the coffee table. It's a single helix, uh, but nonetheless. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, I did that. Uh, no. <laughs> uh, the second one is about, really about, and you've tackled it in the gene as well, uh, the why versus how. So over decades and centuries of research and by people like you and academicians and clinicians, we've been able to understand a lot of how things have happened, how evolution has shaped us the way we are. Uh, But why did it happen? I know there's really no answer to that question, but every time I speak with my mom who's based out of Delhi and she's read all your books and she says it's all because of God. And then she understands she's, she's a scientific person, but she says, how did it begin? Like the first two blobs of RNA, why did they get together? Because there's really no argument that I have when she says it's just something that is 
a divine intervention. Okay. So remember short sentences that end with but, and <laughs> what, Why? Why did life fail? Why, well, why so did... so the, 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 the quick answer is, is biologists, and I, I would suspect scientists in general, have no mechanisms to answer why questions. Um, we have mechanisms to answer how questions. Why questions, sometimes physicists can answer based on energetics and the laws of energetics, which thermodynamics, basically. Um, biologists have a very limited toolkit to answer why questions, aside from evolution and you know, those fundamental theories. So um, it's, it, it, asking a, a biologist a, a why question, you'll almost always end up with a how answer. Um, and uh, that's just the way that, that, that science works. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I, think that the, I think that looking at energetics and looking at the physics of, of energy, which are sort of uh, you know, non-transferable, immutable laws of the universe, sometimes can be useful. Yes, they can be, for, 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 for why questions. For, what, for, for, for biological questions. And, 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 and therefore, by extension, for biological questions. But in general, if you, as I said, if you ask a biologist a why question, you'll end up with a how answer. Yeah. And also, sometimes you end up with... Uh, answers which are not that interesting because what you actually want to... I'm not interested in what a cell is. I'm interested in what a cell does because the, the, we, 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 we sometimes define things in sort of with, with taxonomic... Yeah, and it's, like a, it's an ontological question yeah. rather than, a, exactly. rather than a, a, yeah. a mechanistic question. Sometimes cells are described as precancerous and they revert to normal in, in due course. I don't know whether this is a shorthand that means something else, but why would those cells uh, do that, and are they predisposed towards normality or towards division? So the quick answer is we don't know, but, I, I, but, but the phenomenon is correct. So, so there, there are cancers that don't become cancers. Um, if you do autopsies on, for instance, uh, this big famous study, autopsies on random uh, victims of car accidents, uh, women, um, and it's a relatively random sample, you find that there are tumors in their breast which um, seem to have done nothing. Um, And often they're old enough that they would have become breast cancer by that time. These are all hypotheses. This is not a real randomized experiment. But it seems that cancers don't... We're now realizing, and there's a lot about this in in, in the book, we're now realizing that to become a cancer, having the mutated genes is not enough. You need to have uh, more than, that, than the mutated genes. You need to co-opt metabolism in certain ways. You need to be in a certain place. You need to create a home for yourself. You need to draw blood vessels and so forth. There's a whole process. Um, and that process is not only the mutation of genes. And so you can find things that look like cancer and, in fact, may even have the set of mutated genes, but they, aren't, they don't behave like cancers because they don't have the invasive properties that cancers have. One of the things that's changed in cancer biology recently in the last few years is that we used to think of cancers as just being these sort of homogenous masses. Yes. And whereas we are very heavily differentiated tissue with different types in, in our skin and layers and, you know, eye cells are different from muscle cells and so on. And now what we're discovering is that cancers are much more sophisticated. They're not just lumps. They have their own tissue types. That's right. And, with, that's within correct. them. So can, where, where, how... how I think you know, a question a lot of people want to know is when are we going to find a cure for cancers? Well, so again, the, the, the plural is the important word. Um, when you say plural, it's not, not only cancers, it's a cancers in a single body, um, has different cell types. And one of the theories about why we have different responses to chemotherapy is that you kill the cells that are susceptible to chemo, but the cells that are not susceptible to chemo in that same cancer are not killed. And this is partly why, actually, and I've written about this, this is partly why immunological therapy can be very effective, because the immune system doesn't particularly care what mutations you have. The immune system cares about, you know, whether you have or don't have an antigen, whether you have or don't have a protein that's a marker or a flag. Um, and that's one of the advantages of the immune system. It, it, it's, it's indiscriminate in its capacity to kill and therefore has been quite successful in treating some particular cancers. And that's a big sort of growth area for cancer therapy. That's correct, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Hi. Um, in, your, well, in your opinion, what are the most uh, exciting developments or research going on at the moment? I'm particularly, I mean, you know, people have different interests. Um, 
Adam might have different interests and in, in, in different directions that he would take that question. I'm particularly interested in immunological therapy um, and the variations of immune therapy. Um, I'm particularly interested in the fact that, I mean, again, this might surprise you, but um, recently we've discovered that we can take a, a skin cell from your body and make it into an embryonic-like cell. And that skin cell can then give rise to neurons and uh, muscle cells and cartilage, and so they are called induced, induced because they've been induced, pluripotent because they have the potency of making all of these cells um, uh, stem cells, so IPS cells. And, and these cells are absolutely fascinating. Um, they can be made into various different cell types. There's some, uh, there's some concern about how to regulate them, but, uh, but they, are, you know, they become essentially embryonic stem cell-like and have, have really infinite potential. Um, so I think that's a very, very active area of research. People are trying to make, for instance, pancreatic cells that secrete insulin out of these cells, out of, out of iPS cells, and you can. Uh, people are trying to make uh, skin cells. You can make uh, a beating heart cell um, and potentially recreate, if you could have the scaffolding, potentially recreate a beating heart out of a skin cell that used to be perfectly normal skin cell. I think it's a fascinating area of research. Yeah, I mean, I, actually, that is the, I would give the same answer. I did my PhD at Great Ormond Street, which is 100 yards from here. And, and what we were looking at was stem cells in the eye, so using, using stem cells to create... Uh, to repair damaged tissue in the retina. And that's now therapeutically available using exactly the techniques that, that Sid's describing there. So it's you know, incredibly, it's all derived from that work in the 19th century of understanding right. what cells are. And in fact, I, I, I talk a little bit about not iPS cells, but our lab discovered skeletal stem cells. Um, and we, we've been publishing on skeletal stem cells. And um, we just, about a couple of months ago, uh, so these cells make bone and cartilage. And people thought that once bone and cartilage had been formed, that, that, that there was, you, were, you were done. We found that, in, at least in adult uh, animals, there remains a population. It's a declining population, but there remains a population that continuously can, can give rise to cartilage as you grow along. So for the first time, about two months ago, we transplanted cartilage, cartilage stem cells, and made cartilage inside a, a joint um, and so, obviously, there's some very important therapeutic implications for that, particularly for neglected diseases like osteoarthritis, which is neglected partly because it affects women predominantly. Can you fix my knee? Um, I can try to fix my own knee first, but oh, then yeah, fine, I, fine. You, you, you go after There's a cue. We've got time for two more questions. So, I guess this question is kind of different. Like, what advice do you have? Or, like, how do we go from someone like myself, like a medical student with, like, experience in research, to, I guess, someone like you, like clinician, researcher, and like all of that. What advice do you have, I guess? Oh, well, gosh. Well, re- um, the first thing to do is buy the book and read it. It's like a guidebook. <laughs> well, I'm very bad at, at advice, so um, I, I, try, I try not to give advice because uh, I, whenever I give someone advice, it turns out to be extremely <laughs> terrible advice. So um, uh, the... Um, I mean, I, uh, of course, I've been asked this question many times before, so I have a little bit of a pat answer to this, but, um, but it's not pat because it applies to my own life. I, I, think, that, um, I think that work-life balance is overrated, and I think you, you shouldn't have it. Um, and... Which one shouldn't you have? The work or the life? Life. Um, <laughs> uh, so, um, and, uh, you know, you, you, I, I, think, I think life or leisure, um, can live very well in the interstices of, of work. And there's so much work to do. There's so much to fix, and it seems to be getting worse every day. Um, and so um, I, I realize it's, it's a bad answer. It's probably very bad advice. But, uh, so don't, don't take it, but that's, um, that's the advice I usually give. Yeah, I'm going to go with very bad advice. <laughs> on, uh, take as much time as you, as you can. Live life to the full. <laughs> I've tried to enjoy my, near my life, so I do as little work as possible. Very bad at it. Uh, on, the, on the right there. And then uh, one, what, time for one more after that. Um, as a complete layperson, I was struck by uh, you saying that cells make up the central nervous system. Um, or, or they're part of the nervous system. So putting cancer to one side, which is a big statement, how much is the cure to or, or addressing things like motor neuron disease, 
Parkinson's, ataxia, all, all based in cells rather than any other attack. Yeah, I think, you know, the, the, the treatments for, the, for the diseases of the nervous system is still lagging behind uh, by about 10 years, partly because the mechanism of many of these uh, degenerative diseases is not known. One major problem with degenerative diseases, it's a very major problem and perhaps unrecognized, is that in order to regenerate something, you need to start with something to regenerate. And typically, when you have a degenerative disease, and this applies across all degenerative diseases, that cell, which is capable of regeneration, is gone. And you can't bring it back unless you go this iPS cell route. That's really been maybe a potential escape hatch for, for, for a lot of us. So, so by the time, clinically speaking, by the time these patients come to our attention, um, the cells that could, we could potentially regenerate using drugs or other, other things are gone. So that leaves us with cellular therapies, and it leaves us with the possibility of uh, either transplanting cells from someone else's body or using this escape hatch of, uh, of iPS cells or ES cells from their own body so that they won't get rejected uh, and inject them into, into, um, into those uh, areas. So I think two efforts are very important here. One is to detect early, um, and there are multiple multiple uh, efforts going on to, to, reject, uh, to detect early. Um, and then the second one is, uh, once detected, either find drugs or cellular therapies uh, to help. I should say that early studies um, with uh, these electrodes in Parkinson's disease and in and OCD and others have, have been very promising. So it's possible that you could, you could bypass the missing cells or the dysfunctional cells go, uh, as, as we say in biology, downstream of them and activate a circuit that would, would help uh, with, with some of these uh, therapies, but that's still uh, early days. Well, it is all early days because we are still at the beginning of this amazing forefront of where basic science meets therapy. We're out of time. Um, Sid is going to be signing books uh, through the doors as soon as we've finished Please buy this book. It is a, it's another masterpiece. It's quite annoying that he's managed to knock out three in a row. It's specifically annoying for me, but there it is. But <laughs> well, thank you, Adam. You've been it, it is amazing. my absolute pleasure. But let me just ask you to put your hands together for Dr. Siddhartha Mukherjee. Thank you. This episode starred Siddhartha Mukherjee and was presented by Adam Rutherford. The producers were myself and Esme Bright, and we make the series with help from Nicole Wong. You'll find my interview with Adam on the ugly history of eugenics in our archive. If you enjoyed the show this week, please do rate, review and subscribe. Till next time, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening.